The scripture text for the sermon this morning is Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. We're going to pick up the reading of scripture from chapter 3, verse 23. And we'll read through chapter 4, verse 9. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, that is, the object of our faith is come, Jesus Christ, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. He's referring specifically to the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament there. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. To that point we read the holy and inerrant word of God. Our text is verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. Let's read that again. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God, through Christ. Beloved of God, the occasion for the epistle to the Galatians is that after the first missionary journey on which the Apostle Paul established the churches in Galatia. There were men who came up from Judea who claimed to be 
people of God, but who are called Judaizers, that's what we call them anyway, because they wanted to bring Jewish elements into the religion, not only of Christianity, but into the very gospel itself. And we have to keep in mind, whenever we look at the book of Galatians, that these Judaizers had fundamentally two problems. First, they were teaching that the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament do not fall away with the coming of Jesus Christ, but in fact are still binding upon the church in the New Testament age. And then secondly, they taught that obedience to those civil and ceremonial laws, and indeed to all the law of God, was part of the basis for our justification. Acts 15, verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. The Apostle Paul is dealing with both of these issues then in the book of Galatians. And if we don't keep that in mind, you can't understand the book, and we can't understand this portion of the book that is before us this morning. As far as the context to our text is concerned, in chapter 3, the apostle has been emphasizing the unity of the covenant of grace, Old Testament and New Testament. And he's been doing that to point out that we're justified in the New Testament, the same way they were justified in the Old Testament. Abraham was justified by faith. And we're also justified by faith alone. And the reason for that is because the covenant of God is one covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. And therefore, justification in the covenant does not change from old to new. No dispensationalism that divides the people of God and their salvation as though the Old Testament church was saved, not by Christ, but some other way. The New Testament church alone is saved by Jesus. The apostle is teaching one covenant and one way of salvation, justification by faith in Christ alone. That means that when God gave the law, to Moses on Mount Sinai, he was not, and this is the Apostles' point two in chapter 3, he was not making a new covenant right there. And saying, now on the basis of your obedience to these laws that I'm giving you, that's how you're going to be justified now in this new covenant. But still, justified by faith. Well then, why did he give the law on Mount Sinai there? And the answer the apostle gives is, first of all, generally, he gave the law because the law points us to Jesus Christ. The law shows us our sin and makes us look for Christ, to Christ for salvation. It did that for them, too. Pointed them forward to Jesus Christ. Pointed them to the blood of the sacrifice, which was Christ to them in the Old Testament. And then his answer is, And now, specifically with respect to these civil and ceremonial laws, the reason why God gave them in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, 
was because the Old Testament church was a child. And children need lots of rules and details and laws. That's the theme that he continues here into chapter 4 and into our text and builds upon. They were children who needed all of those detailed laws. We're not children anymore. So don't go back to them and be under that bondage. When Christ came, the bondage to all of those civil and ceremonial laws was lifted and the church rose up into a mature sonship before God. So that you see, whereas before, in chapter 3, he's emphasizing the unity of the covenant, Old Testament and New Testament, to argue his case. Now, he's speaking about the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament to argue his case. Because what if there is the objection? If the covenant is one, Paul, essentially one Old Testament and New Testament, then why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament? an old covenant, and a new covenant. And the apostle is saying, though there is an essential unity, and there is one people, and one way of justification, there is still a difference between the Old Testament and the New. But this is what it is. It's the difference between a child and an adult. And that's how he answers right now, in chapter 4, those two issues with the Judaizers. The civil and ceremonial laws fall away because we're not children anymore. And if they fall away, we're not justified on the basis of obedience to them either. Let's see these things as Paul shows us the truth that with the coming of Jesus Christ, we've gone from children to adults. Notice first this morning the meaning of that, second the power to bring that about, and third the great expression of our more mature sonship from children to adults, the meaning, the power, and the great expression. In order to describe the difference between the one church in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament, The apostle uses an illustration of a wealthy father who has a vast estate. And he decides to give his estate as an inheritance to his son. And he goes through all the legal process so that legally his estate is now his child's right. And yet that father does not actually hand his estate over to his son until his son comes of age, is more mature, and is able to handle the estate. Verses 1 and 2. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. In other words, in the illustration the apostle is giving, that heir, the child, When he's young, he doesn't have all the privileges of being the heir yet, though he is the heir. In fact, number one, he has a certain bondage as a child. 
And number two, he experiences very little of the full inheritance that is in fact his. Let's take both of those. First of all, in the illustration, this heir who's still a child is under a certain bondage. Though legally, this entire estate is his right. He owns it. Nonetheless, he's treated, really, hardly any different from the servants on the estate. Just like the servants, the child doesn't get to decide what to eat, when to eat it. He doesn't get to decide when to go to bed, when to wake up in the morning. He doesn't get to decide what to do during the day and what not to do. Though he's legally the owner of this whole place, he could hardly tell the difference between the servants on the estate and this son. He's under a certain bondage to rules and regulations as a child. And then second, this child, again, though he's legally the owner of this whole vast estate, he only experiences a little bit of that inheritance. The full inheritance is held back from him until he comes to maturity, and for good reason. You remember the story of the prodigal son, where this father has a great inheritance to give to his child, but this child doesn't want to wait until the right time, till he's mature. And so he pesters his father, and his father gives his child all of the inheritance. And what does he do with it? He squanders it, doesn't he? Because he's not mature, he can't handle it. Making the point here of the apostle in the illustration. There's a reason why the father would wait until the child is mature to give him the full inheritance, though in the will, legally, it says the child owns it. The child's taught what it means that he's the legal heir. He tastes the inheritance to a certain extent, but as a child. And he's constantly pointed forward. There's going to come a day, child, when you're going to receive this whole estate. But he doesn't have it yet. It's held back from him. He has to wait. And the apostle says, that's the church of the Old Testament. It's one church, and they're one with us. But they were five years old back then. Ten years old. And all the blessings of the covenant, though they were their right, much of the experience of it was held back from them. They weren't mature enough to handle it all. Instead, they were taught as children about the inheritance of the covenant and what it meant and pointed forward to the day when all of it would come in for them. They tasted it to a certain extent in their youth, to be sure. And they loved what they tasted, but it was so limited. They were under, the apostle says, the elements of the world, verse 3. That means they were under the basics. They were under the elementary things. Children, what do you learn in first, second, and third grade? You learn the basics, right? You learn your ABCs. You learn basic math, arithmetic, division. You learn how to read. Then as you mature, you're given to know more until finally you're doing calculus and you're reading Plato and, and literature. 
They weren't taught all the deep things of God in the Old Testament. They weren't taught the depths of the Trinity. They knew that God was one and that he was more than one, and they knew something about the persons of the Trinity, but not all of the depths of it. They were children. They were learning in pictures in the Old Testament. All the sacrifices, all the feasts, all the symbols, like you give a picture book to a child. They didn't have the full inheritance of the things of God, the glories of his covenant and his life and his purposes. They tasted it, but they tasted it as children would. And as children, they didn't have the mature freedoms that come with adulthood. They had the bondage of that little boy on his father's estate. In the Old Testament, they couldn't decide for themselves what to wear or what to eat. You realize that if you were Old Testament saints gathered here, probably all of you would be in violation of the law just by what you're wearing. You couldn't mix threads, cotton and polyester, and be one thread in the Old Testament. Unless you're wearing 100% cotton here, you'd be violating the law of God. They couldn't mix food groups, meat and dairy. You couldn't take your, your roast and boil it in a pot and put some cream in there. Violation of the law of God. Why? This is how they learned separation from sin, the antithesis. Things had to be separate, like you have to be separate from sin. They learned in pictures. They learned Christ in all of the pictures of the feasts and sacrifices. They were children. But for you, child of God, it's not like that, is it? You're the same people, one church, one covenant, the same covenant. But what accounts for the vast difference of your experience of it? It's that you are them come to maturity. Just like the the five-year-old is the same person when he's 30. But there's differences in the way he experiences life. You're the mature people of God. Verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You have a sonship that doesn't resemble the servanthood of the bondage of young age, but adulthood. Heirs of God who have been given the the full estate now in Jesus Christ. Once that heir grows up in Father's house, everything's different for him. He no longer has every detail of his existence determined for him. You could tell now that he's he's not one of the servants. You could see this is a son, not a servant. He's told not to be a glutton, but he's not told, eat this right now. And that right now. He's told to dress modestly, but he's not told, you wear this, and you wear this, and you don't wear that. And that child growing up on his father's estate, he starts to imbibe the mind of the way his father runs his estate so that he understands his father's principles 
and how they apply to the running of the state. And he, he sees them and understands them and he loves them and he wants this life to continue this way on the estate. And in his maturity, his relationship to his father changes. There's a deeper, sweeter relationship, more mature fellowship with his father as he grows up. That's the New Testament church. These civil and ceremonial laws fall away. There's still the Ten Commandments, to be sure. It's not as though there's no law. And there is the application of these Ten Commandments, as explained in the New Testament. But there's more freedom for the people of God here to apply these commands to our lives to understand these principles and how they work in the life of a child of God and why Father has done it this way. As, of course, some people sometimes, who it seems want to be back in the Old Testament. And they're looking for a a law of God for every last detail of their life and they find some safety there and don't like the maturity that it takes to apply God's word to their life. Then there's others, on the other hand, who you almost want to say, I wish you could go back to the Old Testament because you're so immature spiritually, you can't seem to handle this. You've thrown off Father's principles. You've thrown off his law as though though life in his covenant is... Just do whatever you want. And so commandments can can float and can go away here and there. Fourth commandment, don't need that. Seventh commandment, well, it's fuzzy. But the maturity, that's not maturity. The maturity of the people of God in the New Testament is to take these principles of God's word and the Ten commands of God's word and to say, I understand his mind and why he made life to run this way. And I'm going to apply this to my life. The full inheritance is ours in the New Testament. Not utterly. There's still a a greater inheritance coming and the next life isn't there. But in the New Testament, more of the inheritance, the estate, more of the covenant life is granted to us. Not just the ABCs now. But we have the completed scriptures and all the books of the covenant are open to us and we swim in them in the depths of the things of God. And for 2,000 years, the church has had the privilege of doing that. We're expected to be more mature children. We're not given all of these symbols anymore. We have two pictures. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And for the rest, there's abstract concepts for us to enter into. Things of God that are more deeply explained, more profoundly grasped. We enter into Father's mind and his way. The office of believer in the New Testament is richer, bears more responsibility than the Old Testament. We're called to consciously be a part of the purposes of God in a way they weren't in the Old Testament, to understand 
why he's done this and to rise up and say, and I will consciously promote it and protect it and live it. My mind is is more deeply following the mind of God individually and collectively as the church. And the result is that in the New Testament, our fellowship with our Father is deeper. There's a sweeter, more mature, adult-like relationship with him. Isn't that wonderful? Are you entering into this privilege? Are you handling this privilege as mature sons and daughters of God? Entering into the things of his covenant that he has bequeathed to you, imbibing them, they live in your mind and heart and soul. And this is the life of his covenant that I get to enjoy and I get to promote and carry forth. It says something about parenting too, doesn't it? tells us that when they're little, they need rules. They need detailed applications. And it's really not the case that a parent can say about their 10-year-old, well, I want them to make all their own decisions, so I'm not going to tell them what to do. Absolutely not. They're children. They need the applications of this law in detail to their life. But then it says, too, doesn't it, that as they grow and mature, we're teaching them the principles and the why that they might, by the Spirit, imbibe this and understand this so that when they get older and the scaffolding of all the details could fall away, they run their life according to God's word and they understand why. And it takes wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. To know the timing of this, doesn't it? And to carry this out. The timing of God himself with his church was perfect. The switch from childhood to adult maturity, the Apostle Paul tells us, comes at the fullness of time. When Jesus Christ was sent into the world, the time appointed of the Father... When God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That was the fullness of time. Or when the fullness of time had come, God sent him so that this switch would occur. His church would come to maturity. The image in that phrase, the fullness of time, is of a a bucket that's slowly being filled with water until it's finally completely full, and not one drop can be added to it. When time was filled up, Christ came, and the church came to maturity. In his counsel, God appointed a specific time when Jesus Christ would come. It was not fluid. It would be just at that moment. And at that moment, the church would come to maturity. And the whole Old Testament was God filling up the bucket of that time 
until there was no room for even one more drop. If Christ came one second later, the bucket would overflow. If he came one second early, it wouldn't be full yet. He came exactly at the time appointed of the Father. And through that whole Old Testament, that bucket of time was being filled up. God was maturing his church. Five years old, seven years old, ten years old, until it was time for her to be a mature son and daughter. You can even see God doing this with his church. Especially at the end of the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about that? When the church comes back from the Babylonian captivity, how many things are different for them now? They rebuild the temple, but it's not glorious like the temple of Solomon, and and half the people are dismissive about it. There's no Ark of the Covenant to put in the most holy place. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The pictures are starting to fall away, you see. There's no king who sits on the throne anymore. It won't be again until Christ comes. They're under foreign rule, the whole rest of the Old Testament, and into the New Testament. God is pointing them away from the pictures to the reality. You have to understand now that the kingdom is spiritual. Read Ezra and Nehemiah and see how he's pointing them away from direct revelation and more pointing them to the inscripturated revelation. You're going to have to learn through this book now that I'm giving you. It's time to grow up, my church. After the captivity, the people of God are scattered. Some come back to Israel, and many do not. They're throughout the empire, and God is preparing for the day when the church will grow up and come from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and not just from national Israel. He's even working in his sovereignty in the nations to prepare for his church's maturity. So that in the Roman Empire, there's a a road system that goes throughout the empire. There's one language throughout the empire so that Paul can come and bring the gospel outside of national Israel. And when a young girl from Nazareth was old enough. He moved in Caesar Augustus so that all the world would be taxed to bring that young woman to Bethlehem because it's time now for my church to grow up. And at the precise moment, he sent forth his son. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. It's time to go, my son, right now. Take note that he doesn't become God's son after he sent. The apostle does not say he sent him forth who then became his son. But he sent his son. He was already his son. The Apostle Paul understands that when you see Jesus in the manger, it's not the first time he's the Son of God. He's been the Son in his person from all eternity already. And the triune God had decreed that in the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son, he would come down and become the Son made flesh. 
and be born of a woman so that this eternal only begotten Son would at the same time receive a humanity from Mary and be the Son also in our flesh, fully God, fully man. And because also fully man, be made under the law, verse 4. Because every creature who comes into God's world will come under his law. He is God, and creatures cannot exist but under law if he is sovereign. And that law always comes to all creatures and says, do this and live. Do not do this and you die. It comes to fish that way. The law of God for the fish is that it must exist in water. Do this fish and live. Don't do it and you die. And if a fish goes against that law and tries to live on land, it dies. There's a law for trees. Live planted in the earth. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you die. There's a law for human beings too. Love me with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And show that love for me in obedience to my commands. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you die. And so when Jesus came, when the Son came, born of a woman, receiving a humanity from his mother, he comes to under this law. And since he comes in particular under the Old Testament system, really as the last Old Testament man, he comes also under those specific applications of God's law to his life. Under that kind of Old Testament bondage, That's why he had to be circumcised the eighth day. That's why he had to attend all of the feasts. And you can be sure he didn't mix dairy with mute either. And he bore the weight of this law upon him. He obeyed it perfectly, including the heart of it. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he paid the price for us who disobeyed that law. When we come into this world under that law, Old Testament or New Testament, And the law killed him there, not because he couldn't obey it, he obeyed it perfectly, but because we couldn't obey it. And he bore our offenses to that law upon himself, and it killed him for our offenses. He took hell for us upon his cross and redeemed us, us, who were ourselves under the law. In two ways. redeemed us from the curse of the law generally. The apostle has talked about that in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. He bore the curse against us for our disobediences to the law. The heart of the law, too. The Ten Commandments. To free us from its curse. And then second, by his obedience and death, he also lifted the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws from off of the church, now poised to come of age. He fulfilled all those ceremonial laws. They were all pointing to him, pictures of his cross. And so they all fall away when the reality comes. 
He dies on his cross for elect Israelites and elect Gentiles, inaugurating an age where the gospel would not be contained to Israelites anymore, but for Israelites and Gentiles. He ended the church's bondage to the Old Testament system there upon the cross. So that the elementary things do not hold us back. <coughs> and what's more, at the same time he delivered us from the bondage of that Old Testament system, he positively gave us a higher, deeper sonship. Or much more, the full inheritance of God's covenant has come to us. You have to see now, now the apostle in verse 5 is showing how in Jesus Christ, the two restrictions of the Old Testament situation, the bondage of their youth, and the inheritance that was held back from them to a certain extent, are now reversed in the coming of Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them, number one, who are under the law, delivering them from that that bondage of being a youth under all those rules. And also, the text says, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's the full inheritance coming in, the adoption of sons. Now you know why the Apostle calls the Holy Spirit, in verse 6, the Spirit of his Son. God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. His own Son, who comes down and walks upon this earth, and in his holy humanity experiences a sonship before his Father, in his flesh, that is marvelous and deep. That son now ascends into heaven and sends the spirit back upon his church as the spirit of himself to bring Christ's own experience of sonship in his humanity to you and to me in the church. That's what the apostle is saying. So that our sonship now is a reflection, it's a in some measure, his own sonship. They were sons in the Old Testament. They had the Spirit. Not like us, beloved. We have the Spirit as the Spirit of his Son. That they did not have. The triune God planned When you accomplish their redemption, my son made flesh, I will bring you home. I'll give you the whole third person of the Trinity to pour out upon the New Testament church as the spirit of yourself, full of your own sonship when you were there, that they might come to maturity and taste your own sonship. In Romans chapter 8, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. 
Calvin said that surely the highest name that the Bible ever gives the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Adoption, that he brings Christ's own sonship to us as adopted sons. That's what you have now, beloved. That's your gift. That's what you may enjoy. That's your privilege. A sonship deeper, higher, closer, fuller. Everything in New Testament church life is flavored by this. It's the great reality to which you've been privileged to enjoy. Embrace it. Be thankful for it. Enter into it. Understand the the kind of life this calls you to. It's time to grow up. Given to know secrets that were held back from them. He's trusting you with these things. And you know, the Apostle says one of the greatest experiences. And the greatest expressions for the New Testament church of this reality, this deeper sonship, is that you get to cry, Abba, Father. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, when they did not. Pour over every word of the Old Testament. You will not find a single place where they call him Father. They cry out to him all over the Old Testament. Look at the Psalms. They're crying out to him in intimacy. Absolutely. But they never say this. Father, Father, And it's not because they didn't know him as father. They did. Though they were young, they were still children. His children. What did he say to Pharaoh? Let Israel, my son, go. What does the psalmist write in Psalm 103? As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. It was there, but it was so limited. Because of the bondage of all of these rules and because of the fact that the full inheritance had not come in, the full experience of this wasn't theirs. And so when the disciples heard Jesus address God this way when he was on the earth in his sonship, Father, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent. Father, If it be thy will, hold back this cup from me. And then, he, and then he taught them and said to them, Now, go ahead. And when you pray, say it. Our Father, who art in heaven, he must have hit them like a brick in the face. His own sonship I get to enjoy. Cry out to him that way. This is the marvelous work of the Spirit and the sons and daughters of God 
in the New Testament age. God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Who's doing the crying there? The spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit is crying. But don't forget to add Romans 8, verse 15. Where the apostle says the same thing, but says it this way. He's given you the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, so that you get the point. The spirit full of the sonship of Christ is granted to us and he's crying within us, Abba, Father. He's not doing it in such a way that he he pushes us to the side and says, "Let, let me cry to Father. But in such a way that he's working in us so that his cry produces our cry, Abba, Father, Have you ever seen a 22-year-old cry out to their earthly father? You ever seen a 50-year-old? It's a deep and profound thing. You ever seen a five year old, 20 year old, 55, 65, 85, 95 year old cry out to his heavenly father? It's a deep and profound thing. It's sonship, it's mature sonship. Oh, that's, that's, for the, that's for the weak. That's for the immature. No. This is for the New Testament church. Come to maturity. That throughout their life, this is their cry. Father, Father. Not just saying it. It doesn't say saying Abba, Father. It says crying Abba, Father. In how many different ways in their life in the covenant... Sometimes because the heart of the son is so overwhelmed with thanksgiving to his father, he knows in a deeper way the mercies of God to them than they did in the Old Testament. Haven't you ever seen a mature son go back to his earthly father and say, Father, I get it now. I see everything that you were doing and makes sense to me. Thanks, Father. This is what the New Testament church does. We get it. Father... Thanks. Sometimes it's the cry of absolute wonder and awe at who he is. As the people of God in the New Testament see the sweep of redemptive history and the marvels of his works. And they cry out, Father, Father, you're astounding. Look what you're doing. I see it. Sometimes it's 
the cry of the child of God, burdened by the weight of the guilt of his sins upon him because he understands in a deeper way what that sin is. That in spite of the marvels of who he is and the wonders of his redemption, I still offend the depths of his love. Father, Father, what's wrong with me? Forgive me. Sometimes it's the cry of a son who's utterly desperate. supposed to be so mature in this New Testament age and, and have things handled, who has the inheritance, but he doesn't know what he's supposed to do and doesn't understand the way that God has before him. Father, Father, help me, I don't understand. Sometimes it's the cry of the Son Though he is that mature New Testament saint, he's been reduced to almost infancy, he feels like, by the burden of the trials and struggles of his life, and he has nothing, nothing left except Father, Father. Sometimes it's the child of God who's handled his immaturity improperly and his relationship to his father has gone dry because after all, I'm, I'm a mature son and I have things handled. And I remember who I am now. Father, Father, I am your son. Whatever the case, beloved, this is your greatest privilege. The angels themselves desire to look into these things. And no matter who you are and where you are in life, don't take this for granted. I am a son of the triune God my Father. He's given me this bond. This cry might ring throughout my life. And cry to him now in thanks and praise. Amen. Abba, Father, receive our thanks, our worship, our desperate cries, our wonder and awe at all that thou hast done and art doing as the sons and daughters thou hast made. In Jesus' name, amen.